Hello everyone, welcome to Intimate Animation, brought to you by the online animation magazine Squiggly.com. This series covers animation that takes on adult themes of love, relationships, and sex. So steal yourself as there's some frank discussion ahead. And hello again everyone, welcome to another episode of Intimate Animation. With me, Ben Mitchell, and Laura Beth Cowley. Hello, Laura Beth. Hello. And it's kind of an Encounters special, this episode. There's a big chunk of um, thematically appropriate new work that I thought we would uh, take a look at uh, as part of the Encounters program. How have you been finding the festival, Laura? Good. The selection's quite strong this year, despite, you know, everything that's been going on in the world. I guess everyone's just been huddled down in there respective animated bunkers making films mostly of a sexual nature shall we just sort of go right into it because there isn't a lot of catching up to do like life-wise we've just been sitting here i think so we're dealing with this year a sort of streamlined encounters film festival i was a little surprised if i'm brutally honest i figured last year we had you know it was all online of course I think I was expecting a little bit more hybridization. Yeah, that's a shame because there had been some... Because obviously I've got a film in this year, so I'm sort of overly in communication with people because I get information from you for being slightly involved with the actual running of Encounters. And then we've been doing some writing for Encounters as like freelancers. And then I'm also a filmmaker. So I'm sort of getting like free alternative streams. So I've shit loads of emails with very little information in them. Yeah. And like there was an email a long time ago now about like maybe doing some sort of event for Bristol people. I don't know if that's happening. Um, or whether I've got confused and it's an email from last year, <laughs> which is also. That happened. has happened a couple yeah, of times. Yeah, that's happened a couple of times because it's the same people. And you had a film in last year as well. Yeah. So. so, who knows? But I do feel like it's a slight shame having had a year to sort of come to terms with the fact that we're going to be online. And especially if you knew that at least part of it was going to be online. Like, last year, all bets were off. It's like, who cares? Like, if you've managed to get anything going at all, brilliant. Well done. This year, we're kind of we're kind of used to the whole online thing. You kind of know-ish what's going on. And although I know it's still like an adjustment thing and it's still not ideal, I was expecting maybe... Maybe for there to be more live stuff. Or maybe there to be more communal stuff. Or maybe just for stuff to be up straight off the bat rather than it sort of being dripped in over time. Yeah, I was surprised at that because stuff, as we're recording this, there's a lot of stuff that isn't up yet that we've done for it. And I think the difficulty is there's this kind of free-flowing idea of what a film festival is now because it can all be online. And so Encounters is going over the entire month this time, which is wonderful. But I feel like that hasn't taken into account the fact that most people aren't on furlough this year, which they were last year. So having it over a month was great last year because we had F all to do. This year, not so much. Also, like the Q&As this year are, are like pre-recorded. And I do think, although I, you know, once again, because like we said, I had a film in last year. So I, I remember that and I was part of the Q&As for that as well last year. And although not many people did turn up live, I still like that element of it. Well, the only thing that's sort of happening in terms of physical events, there is a touring program. Is there? 
Well, yeah, but they were really, really sort of quiet about it. And I only saw this because Kim Noche posted about it. She has a film in. Kim Noche, who's been on this podcast, her latest film is called Cities of Ladies, and it's very loosely based on um, a book. But yeah, the other animation films, I think there's like two or three other ones. So there's um, Brunch, which um, there was, there's an interview, I think, online uh, now on Squiggly with Marnik Loyson. The Dragonhead Tree by Jackie Wang, uh, Kim Noche's film, and uh, Night of the Living Dread by Ida Mellum, who there's also an interview with Ida on Squiggly. Um, that's a film worth kind of chatting about a little bit. It's not like a sexually themed film. It's a film about nighttime anxieties keeping you up, like sort of lingering, embarrassing memories. But there are some, I suppose, uh, vaguely saucy slash naughty jokes in it. Yeah, a little bit. I think it's it, the more... I think maybe like two. But <laughs> Sort of, yeah. There's some sex in it. But I think really the thing that sort of makes it a good fit for the podcast is the fact that it's dealing with female internal monologues and embarrassment and things that we shouldn't be embarrassed about but are and how those things keep us awake. Yeah, essentially. I thought it was probably my favourite of this year's like NFTS crop. Mm. Not that it's a contest, but it is is actually. (laughs) Fight with each other for our approval, please. If you were to look at it completely on its own, I I think a lot of people at first site would look at this film and go oh that's an nfts film because of the way it blends the the sort of mixed media yeah. and she actually mentioned it like they actually don't encourage that oh really <laughs> but it's just like a thing that i guess all nfts students come and they want to do this is that version of rebellion yeah and then they realize it's like oh great i just made the production of my film three times more complicated so i guess with that we could uh move on to the rest of the program so, anything that sort of struck you in particular, sort of personal favourites? Self Scratch was very good. I watched that for the first time today, actually. Oh, yeah, you like that one. Mm. There's been a kind of weird trend in this year's selection, and I think it's just Psychice a bit. You remember how, like, was it last year there was like a theme in Annecy of just like women getting abortions? There was like three films that were doing the rounds that were all about young women choosing to have abortions. The uh, hot topic of the yeah, of the- it was odd. It was just it just happened that there were three films of very similar themes, and this one similar to the one we just talked about. There's another film as well being screened that's all about like female internal dialogues and how critical we are of e- ourselves. And this film is one of those, and I think it's a very successful version of that. But it's about a woman who is voicing all her dislikes of herself i think on the back of a breakup yeah it's it's breakup inspired like depression really yeah Um, and then there's these like little chibi baby versions of herself they're like no i'm amazing yeah um and about how we have to tap into that youthful euphoria in order to bring ourselves out of darkness they're sort of in combat with one another like, they will pipe up these sort of characters and swarm around her with positive affirmations, and she'll let it wash over her a bit, and then the defenses sort of come up, and then she's like, no, actually, I am shit. Yeah, I think it's something like, you'll be like, no, you're amazing. It's like, no, yeah, I'm amazing. No, I'm not. I'm really self... I'm really um, conceited. <laughs> this yeah. is like how quickly, like, every thought is sort of flipped on its axis towards being negative, and there's just some really nice visual things in in it as well the kind of mania kind of reminds me a little bit of um possession as well like there's a scene where she's sort of like multiple versions of her are kind of writhing and mm. struggling and that really reminded me of that scene in the um 
the tunnel in possession. But yeah, it's just a very strong and very emotionally charged film, I guess. It does kind of tap into like that feeling of everything just turned on its axis. Even if you are quite self-assured or don't have issues with depression, generally the way you can spiral mm. with a breakup, like all bets are off. Or anything, really. It really reminds me of, like, not continuous depression, but, like, those moments where you just get yourself into a right state about something. There's a moment that's sort of, like, slightly more subtly in the soundtrack of just this kind of wrenching crying where you're, like, almost gagging because you've, you've just upset yourself so much. Yeah, it was, it's quite harrowing toward mm. the end before it kind of um, reached. Yeah. So the other one of the films that are sort of talking about kind of internal monologues of negativity is eating in the dark which also just has a very odd character design it has the um notorious penis nose <laughs> like that i've also done in the past where it's just overly long and kind of pink a little bit curved yeah very blessing or a curse depends on uh, your perspective i suppose very phallic noses and also some quite phallic phalluses and sex toys yeah lots of vibrators but yeah, this is another film about like, but this in this version, there's like a imagined entity that follows the main character around who's constantly criticizing her, but it's clearly a part of her. It's an internal voice. It's sort of an inversion of the other film in that it's, you know, the manifestation of self-doubt is the creature rather than the manifestation of positive affirmation. Yeah, I mean, all three films have manifestations in them as well. It seems like it's quite a common... I guess trope so in the first film there were it's herself throughout different time periods sort of reminiscing on embarrassing moments the last one was the children who are like positive affirmations of herself and then this one is a negative affirmation of herself that she has to sort of defeat with self-confidence and self-belief which is something that we see quite a bit in animation and I think what kind of sells a film that tackles that is how well it stands on its own two feet and this has such great, like, bizarre design. Oh, this one's also just bonkers. Like, there's just so many bits in it that are, like, kind of weird, superfluous moments that you're just like, okay. Like, there's a bit with her in the bathtub. Do you remember that? When she sort of, like, makes a little fart bubble and then, like, holds oh, yeah. it in her hand and then smells it and then makes, like, the most bizarre face. <laughs> but that I really like. I mean, it looks like it's... A style that isn't sort of limited to this film. She's made quite a few. There isn't a lot of bio-information on the Encounters portal that I could see, but if you go on to Inari Sirola, who's the director, uh, uh there's a lot of really interesting-looking projects on there. Yeah, very, very contemporary. You know, really, really sort of, like, uncompromising colours and... Um, Everything's kind of melty and rubbery and fleshy and gr kind of almost gross. Yeah. Another one I'd uh, earmarked was called Anna Lejavanese. This one had a bit of an interesting backstory. It's less about sex, but more about sort of needless sexualization. Uh, I think there's an article that kind of goes into the, uh, the backstory. Mm. Did you read that? Yeah, so it's kind of a complicated thing because she was essentially trafficked from Tahiti. And then picked up by this artist. And the painting is quite famous. Did you know the painting before seeing this film? No, not really. I know it, but I don't... It's just part of art history. Like, I must have seen it at some point. Not the actual... Necessarily the actual painting, but I've seen it in books and stuff. Like, I particularly know that the, the monkey, because there's a lot of, like, 
it probably something to do with color theory from this article there's basically there's a lot of like unsurety because she was you know she didn't have a lot of agency over herself she was a model she was sort of she was sort of uh what's the word like passed around that world that like between art critics and artists and stuff uh both as a model and sexually and so she, but the idea is or the the most common consensus is that she was a 13 year old girl who had been transported from tahini tahini no tahiti tahini is a paste <laughs> tahiti and um in the film her mother sold her right. over to pay off her father's gambling debts but the film is i think dramatized Yes, it's put across as a reimagining. Yeah, but essentially, it's it's a very provocative and problematic painting in terms of race and trafficking and paedophilia. Because although at the time it may not have been a problem or seen as a problem, it certainly is now. Uh, right. And she was thirteen, and it's you know, as we know now, that's not an age you can really give consent at. And she also, having been trafficked, she didn't wouldn't have had a say in it anyway. No. Stylistically, it's very reminiscent of that new Calamity Jane film and that, uh, I've forgotten what his name was, Long Way Up North. Long Way North. Long Way North, that's it. So it has that kind of like very 2D, no line work style. And it's very visually pretty. I feel like through having been animated and it's very dialogue heavy and because it's a sort of CD potentially an unpleasant story. I think animation could have been used in a slightly more overt way, I guess. Okay. I think it's lovely. Maybe it was aimed at children and telling her story without being too graphic, but that not a lot happens. Yeah. In the film itself, a lot of it's sort of done in dialogue, which kind of, in my mind, defeats the point of it being animated. Yeah, fair enough. But it's still, it's a lovely film, and it seems to be a kind of continuously rotating narrative that people have like retold in various guises well the article that the director references in the uh, supplemental materials is at artasiapacific.com the article is called recap of karani baraka's anna nomenclature by piers masterson and that has an interesting backstory here's one that uh, i know you're quite well acquainted with because you wrote it up uh, as part of the Reflective Encounters series of mini, mini, mini analyses uh, for each film. It's a bunch of uh, film critics of kind of contributing very short form write ups, essentially, of uh, films in Critical the program. Reviews sure. Is what I've been calling them. You did one for this. It's called Breaking Bread by Yuan Lee Elizabeth Su. Uh, question of what it means to love as a God fearing gay person. And. I'll be brutally honest, if I hadn't read that, I don't think I would have got that. Yeah, absolutely no. I mean, it's very short. It's a sort of combination piece of, like, really short animated sequences that don't really feel like they're necessarily to do with one another. It comes from, I think, a fine art position, and I think it also comes from a very emotional slash confused position. Because I think she probably made quite a lot of this while she was, because she was like investigating this relationship in her own mind between being gay and still being part of her religion and how to 
reconcile yeah, those, those two you know, things together. Which is a tough row to hoe. I mean, you know, different religions to different degrees, but... And cultural as well. Yeah. But it can be quite heartbreaking when, you know, there's no sort of um, wiggle room, I guess. But it's all about, like, the whole film is just, like, lots of people not quite touching or going to hug each other but not quite getting there. Right. And, like, little moments of, like, kind of eroticism that, that are kind of shut down too quickly. It sort of really speaks to this idea of, like exploration when you're sort of like not sure about your sexuality and so you're sort of looking at little bits and then you feel guilty about it or unsure about it so that i think is a good case to be made for you know the online platform being an option for watching films because i think in the context of like just seeing this film among a bunch of films and like you say it's very short it's like a minute long a lot of the kind of nuances improved by repeat viewing yeah. and being able to kind of pour over shots because they go by so quickly. It's a thinker. It was helped a lot by reading her statement and sort of getting... Because she writes quite a lot about the film and that's all available on the Encounters page as well. Yeah. And that helps. Another film... This one is sort of, I guess, more tenuous, although it is about a relationship, I guess. It's about a family um, and a very strained place that the husband and wife have gotten to. It's pretty much, like, non-verbal. Yeah, exactly. It's called uh, Trona Pinnacles by uh, Mathilde Parquet. But yeah, other than that sort of, like, you know, element of it, it's, it's... I don't know, what would you say this film was kind of about? For me, the like major theme of it was less about the relationship. I think the relationship is the kind of deeper meaning of the whole film and sort of ties it all together. But a lot of it, for me, was about the stress of going on like a family holiday that's just not going well and about travel in general when you all start to get hot and tired and perhaps one member of the group is really the driving force as to why you've ended up in a place and how little irritations can cause really quite big rifts. Because in the film, something quite dramatic almost happens and it sort of brings everyone back to Earth because they're like, oh, this could have gone really badly. And actually, although we're having these tiffs and maybe maybe our relationship isn't going to make it, we do have this daughter <laughs> that we have to think about. Mm. And although, you know, we might not like each other anymore, we still have to get on for her. Yeah. I think it's kind of a... Um a night of the soul mm. for all concerned. Like, you know, they all kind of, the wife goes out on her own. How and the daughter go to go look at a rock formation. That is the main reason they've gone on this holiday to the, to the desert. And, um, the husband stayed at home, which is, you know, a bit of a dick move because it's the whole reason they're gone, but he's just so sick of the tension. Yeah. And she's yeah. just like, I'm going anyway. But there's been, like, delays and maybe it was, like, a lifetime ambition of hers. And so, yeah, it's just a lot of... It's just that mounting tension. Yeah, and there is a slight sense of, like, reconciliation at the end. I think that, you know, at the sort of core, it's about moving through brick walls. It's also slightly about the kind of majesty of nature and how insignificant our problems are when when you have, you know, like when you have those moments where you see like an amazing vista and you're like, oh wow, we are just ants. Yep. It's, it's also a, a slight reflection on that and about how the majesty of nature can sort of bring us back to our generally our insignificance but how that can be quite comforting knowing that really none of it matters so when i see majestic expanses and uh, incredible feats of nature i think to myself how nice 
of nature to have made this for me, for my soul better. <laughs> Hello. Does that make me uh, egotistical? I think it makes you, like, psychopathic. <laughs> Uh, then there's JJ by Petrus Dipetic and Marin Weisse. And uh, I spoke with them pretty briefly at a filmmaker Q&A for this screening, If Walls Could Speak. And uh, that was a pretty packed Q&A. So I don't really get to do much other than scratch the surface with the filmmakers. That being said, they did have some insight into making this film. This one's really... It's one of my sort of favorites in terms of just the overt appeal of the character design and the um, just the look of the material and the color theory and stuff like that. What did you think of this one? Do you think the scenery is CG? I think this establishing shot is. Yeah. I really like the character design and I really like her weird boob hair. Yeah, the boob hair is uh, inventive. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a hair hoodie with boobs. They're a the, bit like... The, the whole thing's a little bit like Rex the Runt. Yeah, it's sort of Rex the Runt and a bit of Adventure Time sensibility. Mm. Doesn't he have like a kind of hoodie thing, the main guy? Yeah. The kind of anthropomorphized clothing is a bit Adventure timey. Certainly the flatness of it, though, very much sort of screams Rex the Runt. And I like the sort of visible seams you can see at the sides. That it's moulds, yeah. Yeah. It looks very slick at a kind of, like, medium distance. And then when you get to the close-ups of the faces, they keep in a lot of, like, imperfections. Yeah, it's nice. It's, like. a, it's a very material-led visual style, which I like. Uh, this one also, I guess, slightly similar to the previous film we were talking about, where it's about a couple who, I guess, just sort of gradually have drifted apart or are finding less and less by way of communication, like, harder and harder. This one, I think, attributes that more to, like, technology. I think it's more, with this one, it's about, like, apathy and how that can affect one member of a, of a relationship, because one of them is, like, becoming slowly more internal, but not in a particularly cruel way, just in a kind of absent, accidental way. But the other one is taking it very to heart. They've become complacent. I think. But that, I think, is a danger. It's a sort of pitfall that you can fall into because you feel comfortable and you don't realise that what you're in is a rut. Yeah. You know? It's about not putting the effort in and how that can be quite devastating. And, like, when you're in a relationship that maybe isn't going anywhere or is not is sort of stagnating and how you sort of hold on to kind of nostalgic memories. Or like, but it used to be great and that's why I'm staying and why I'm not addressing the issue because maybe this is just a phase. Maybe this will just sort of sort itself out. Mm. And, you know, I think that that's a lot sadder when it happens so quickly. And you do sort of get the impression that this, you know, relationship hasn't been going on for, like, decades. It seems like they're kind of a youngish couple. Yeah, remember how we also said it was, like, or I said, there's also potentially this idea that during, like, lockdown, there's been kind of an acceleration of this because lots of people at the beginning of lockdown had to sort of make a decision quite early in relationships like okay are we going to wait until this is over and resume or are we just going to really rush this and move in and see how we get on yeah and so there's a slight potential reflection either purposely or by the audience on that about like how insist upon isolation i guess or or government mandated isolation of couples is perhaps 
made things worse or better but like everything is just much more than it would have necessarily been oh yeah no i think it's been an absolute death knell in some people's situations you know and you worry about people because they some people the worst place that they can be is trapped at home yeah you know if they're in a bad situation it's sort of about like how isolation can sort of breed emotional states either good or bad moving on to the comedy screenings this one you were just watching again this is an old film it's called farce i mean it's oldish i i've been seeing this festivals for i feel like two years I actually thought when this one came along with the pre-selection, like, oh, this guy's made another film. Mm. And then I was like, five minutes ago, I was like, it's really similar. Yeah. <laughs> but no, this film is actually, it's, it's I guess, a couple of years old now, but it's first screening at Encounters. I'm pretty sure I saw it at Stuttgart originally. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I just love the look of this. It's so, like, cheap and cheerful and shonky and gross and um, slapdash. And- but it's also really well done. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. It has this very, like, crude, almost arts and craft feel to it. Like, it feels like the kind of things you'd make as a kid when you'd, like, make little painted paper puppets. Yeah. With, like, it looks like everything's been made with poster paint. Yeah, and, like, little cut-out... Pin puppets, you know, yeah. when you'd get, like, safety pins. They're like, I've made a doll. And uh, and there's another film, actually, that sort of uses that. Uh, the was talking It's that film, Not... Um, oh, yeah, yeah. That has a kind of cut-out pin puppet uh, feel. characters in it. This one almost has a kind of Mark Baker feel to it. Maybe just because it's set on a farm. Do you know if this film was done on, like, a multiplane? Uh, I mean, it looks like it is, but that could be digital compositing. Mm-hmm. I'm not 100% sure of the... Um, it doesn't quite have that feel because it doesn't seem to have that depth that you get with multiplane. It seems a bit mm-hmm. more... It seems far more flat... Maybe it's just digitally composite. The only kind of depth you get is like where like the edges of paper have sort of curled in a bit. Yeah. Anyway, the uh, the premise of the film is a Sammy man ends up in greedy and decadent claws as he tries to save both his reindeer herd and the woman he desires. An awful fable about fatal passion. So one strand of it is fighting to save his love. Uh, and the other side of it that I suppose makes it a thematic fit for this podcast is the big wolf cocks. <laughs> yep, the massive wolf song is why it's here. And um, I think as you rather keenly observed, it does appear that there is an actual schlong sort of makes a cameo. Not sure who's. Maybe the directors, maybe a friend, maybe just a, a just, schlong he stumbled upon. Just Pornhub. Not my place to ask. Uh, but, we should you know. be sponsored by Pornhub. We should be sponsored by something. Yeah. We should be, there are a couple of, I think, like smaller sex toy boutiques that I think would really benefit from sponsoring us. You know, if you're Especially starting... It's like dildos and vibrators turn up in a lot of animated films. Yeah. Animators are crazy for them, and why not? So I don't know if it's even worth kind of explaining it more or if we should just leave it. I don't think we can without spoiling it because it's just manic. I sort of read his, like, statement and it's it's got more to do with wealth Mm. and about rich people and how they get away with anything they want and poor people have to, like, fight for everything. But it's very, like, filthy dirty in order to get there. 
It's great fun. I was surprised it was in just the regular comedy screening and not oh, it should late have been lounge. In late lounge. And there are a few the other way around. Maybe like I would have thought. Maybe yeah. I feel um, like the the what like four foot penis makes it a late lounge trauma. Yeah, well, it's also it's it's sort of got horror elements. It's cannibalism. It's there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of viscera. By the way, it wasn't human meat. It was the meat of the the reindeer. Yeah, reindeer meat. Right. Still, I mean, but he know. ends up in the at some point. Someone ends up in the grinder. Right. So it's perpetual. It's possible cannibalism. Um. So yeah, I mean, you know, above all else, that film. This film was just great fun. Yeah. It's good. Um. Yeah, a man, a woman, and a meat grinder. Love is messy. <laughs> uh, it's by Robin Jensen. Uh, so you can I check. like Robin Jensen. Another one I earmarked. I know what I don't think I watched this yet. It's called Gunter Falls in Love. So because it has love in the title, I <laughs> wrote it down. Did you watch this one? Yeah, it's kind of relevant. It's about a dog who falls in love with his owner's Christmas present. I see. And like, oh, is it like a teddy bear or something? Yeah, that's why. Because um, it, yeah, it had nostalgia. This is my dog. My dog did this. I had a stuffed bulldog toy called um, Bonnie. Oh. And my female dog humped it, which is very confusing. Well, you know, the heart wants what it wants. Yeah. So I was like, oh, well, that's. Uh, I'm not playing with that anymore. This is. I mean, I'm just watching it as I'm talking about it. I love the puppet. The puppet's the, lovely. Yeah. This type of dog translates so well to stop-motion puppets. Like because remember? they always kind of look like a puppet. Yes. They got that, you know, perfect kind of wall-eyed... <laughs> like, yeah. They're very cartoony creatures. Oh, they're making little flower angels. <laughs> I wonder if um, this director was inspired by Isle of Dogs. Yeah, it looks like Oracle, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, she was the... She stole the show, I mm. think. You love that dog. Yeah, and she's only in it for like 30 seconds, but it's such she's a great so um, such a great uh, addition. Like, um, Swinton's character. Oh, this is by Josephine Loha Self. I'm pretty sure we have an interview with Josephine on an earlier film she did called The Fabric of You. It was like animals. It was a mouse puppet, but it was sort of representative of, I believe it was a gay man grieving his lover and not really being able to grieve openly because of the time period. I think it was the 50s. So this is a, a quite different beast, this film. This film is more a kind of short and sweet, goofy comedy thing. So yeah, Gunther falls in love. Oh, another dog-themed one. And this one really, really kind of stood out to us. I'm not really sure. I mean, again, it's barely a love story. I think I just put it on this list because we both like it. Uh, love is just a death away. Do you remember this one? Yeah, this is wonderful. I remember watching this and we were saying how it's quite similar in, like visual gag to Under the Apple Tree. It's like gnarly Isle of Dogs. It's I mean, Isle of Dogs is already pretty gnarly, but this kind of takes it to an extra, you know, a, another place. The Isle of Dogs. But it's almost like, I don't know, I feel like kids would probably find this funny too. Like, oh. I don't think it would scare kids. I think, I think it would probably... maybe freak some out. Yeah. So um, it seems like it's a sort of zombie dog in a scrapyard kind of thing, and then we realize that it's actually a maggot controlling the corpse of the dog. Don't give it away. <laughs> are they maggots or is it a caterpillar? I guess it does give it away quite early. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know. <laughs> but it's kind of like ratatouille, I guess. Yeah. It's, you know. 
gross ratatouille. Instead of pulling on his hair, he's pulling it on, like, like, you know... Tendons. Tendons and connective tissue and um, neurons in the dog's The worm brain. is so cute, though. It is. It's very cute and it's very sort of... I love I don't know. this film. It's so good. It's very grim, but it's also very appealing. Um, it reminds me a bit of um, Isabel's butterflies. Yeah. In, yeah. like, visual... And colours, you know? It's got really rich cinematography. The colours are really nice. Like, considering that it's set in, like, a junk pile. It has a kind of corpse bridey colour palette. Yeah, but it doesn't feel, like, arbitrary or, like... No, um, it's lovely. It's very jazzy. And the skies are really well thought out, and they complement the whole production design Mm. really well. The skies are gorgeous, aren't they? They uh, Do you reckon they're just photographs? Because they're just too nice. I think it's green screened and then composited in. Yeah, probably. And yeah, I guess, I mean, they can't really sort of go into the love element of it too much without giving away the ending, because that's sort of what it builds to. But it is ultimately, I guess, about finding a kindred spirit. So that's definitely one to check out, too. I like the end of Azumaki. This was one where I kind of, like, it sort of came across, you know, the pre-selection, and I'm just like, just put it in. Like, there was no kind of hesitation about, like putting it through. It I remember was, at the time we it was a particularly bad batch that we'd gone through and it was like <laughs> a film with actual qualities. Yeah. That hasn't been made on an iPad with a foot. But I do think even like against the rest of the final selection, I think that's still one of my favourites. Oh it's very strong. It's very strong and very cinematic. Um Sweet Nothing by Joanna Fisher and Marie Kenov. Uh, this is another one I think you wrote up for the analyses. Yep. Uh, what did you make of this one? It's another sort of short and sweet one, but I think I remember seeing this and when you were doing pre-selection as well. And it's yeah, it's just really nice. It has a really good design style and sensibility to it. It's very well considered in terms of like the color palette and the design and how everything has kind of these soft, rounded edges. They sort of bring this so the film is about a woman who's sunbathing and she gets a bit like turned on because of the heat and because like she sort of sees a guy who's gardening and she sort of her imagination and erotic wants sort of collide Mm. i think she looks like me (laughs) i think the one thing that i felt like coming away from it was the film felt almost like it was setting up something longer and the ending to me, seemed a little bit sad. Maybe it's just that I was enjoying it. And, yeah, I don't, I don't think so, because I think it's about a climax. It's very encompassing of the idea of having an orgasm. Like, all this mounting tension, all this mounting, like, visual stimuli, all this kind of raising heat, and then all of a sudden it's over. Yeah. That's both the premise and it's how it's structured. Mm. And um, then back to normal. It looks just fantastic. Like, yeah, it's, it's a really it's, lovely... Yeah. Lovely considered piece. Another film worth mentioning, we won't go into it too much because we actually have a feature on the site that just went up as part of our animation one-to-ones with uh, Marie Villad, and she made a film called Boobs, or Lulos, and that was really nice. It was sort of um, similar in some respects to Anna Ginsberg's film uh, Love-Hate Relationship. It's sort of semi-autobiographical, I suppose. It's about coming to terms with having breasts, first of all, and then 
all of the kind of ambivalence around it and everything that kind of comes with it, everything that's kind of connected to it. And, you know, it's sort of tied in with fears of getting sick, fears of motherhood, and of course, you know, obviously sexuality and that sort of thing. It's a big mixed bag. Yes, I would agree. Yeah, I think most women have a complicated relationship with their breasts, whether they're big or small. They're always a source of annoyance (laughs) and or aggravation like they're kind of just always in the way and if they're not you're like why don't i have bigger boobs Mm. there's a really nice sequence in this where like she comes across someone else who was also like flowering like they sort of flower on her chest like sort of crumpled paper that then unfold to like you know um xeroxed paper bosoms over this rotoscoped performance that um it's the director, it's Marie, who's doing the character, among other people. But there's a nice sequence where she encounters someone else who has, you know, just grown a pair of paper breasts and they take them off and swap them. She realizes that, you know, the ones that she just swapped are smaller, so she's like, no, give them back. <laughs> and then it goes into sort of a bunch of different territories. Anyway, yeah, there's a, uh, a longer interview with Marie on Squiggly if you check out the animation one-to-one series. Um, Marie also does Festival Stop Motion Montreal, so she's... A kindred spirit in that she's on sort of both sides of the looking glass there. So, yeah, some interesting perspectives there. Um, one that I found quite sad, I liked the style a lot. I don't think you did so much. It's called Granny's Sexual Life. I mean, it's quite a... It was almost an aggressive style. Oh, in, yeah. In its kind of... What's the word? Naivety, I guess. But it does work. And it is well animated. It's just not a particularly appealing initial image. I think for me, it kind of it reminds me of certain artists and animators, maybe from like the sixties or seventies. I'm not. I don't really feel like it's like Bob Godfrey, but that for some reason is the name that's coming to my head. Mm. Um, but there's a simplicity to it that, as the film goes on, and it's about. I think the status quo mainly of what it was to be a subservient wife, certainly in the earlier decades of the 20th century, you know, it was very much lie back and think of England. And if you don't, there'll be hell to pay. And it, you know, and it alludes to, you know, how bad things could get and how not remotely a concern of the husband it was for the wife to get any pleasure out of it no you were she was a commodity she was owned by her husband and she had duties so it's yeah it's it's a sort of account told by i think various aunts or uh, i forget if they're direct relatives of the um director or if they're kind of um based on testimonies but it's um it was interesting and quite uncomfortable there's a sequence where there's no animation at all it just goes black and we're just dealing with foley and uh, you know it's a very uncomfortable thing to sit through but i felt quite powerful because mm. like you've been dealing with and then i think it resumes almost like the um that kind of childlike naive quality um as it wraps up so yeah it kind of throws you about a bit but it's interesting. And uh, that's by Kitch, I think. Triggered by the revealing way one of their granddaughters is dressing, four old women reflect on their memories of old times when they themselves were young and how different the relationships between men and women were back then. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting film. I don't a ton of info about it, but um, 
yeah, one to check out. And yeah, there are a few others that we've mentioned before. Wet and Soppy's playing as part of Encounters. That's a film about a very kind of mild, affectionate stalker. Uh, Love-Hate Relationship, Anna Ginsberg's film. That's part of the animation program, too. Of course, Affairs of the Art by Joanna Quinn. We talked about that, I know. That's more about family and art and the female and male form, I suppose. Top-notch Joanna Quinn fair. So, yeah, there's coverage for those already on Squiggly, uh, if you want to check those out, too. A film we haven't talked about yet is Soft Animals, and that's by Renee Zahn. And uh, some of you will have deduced that is this episode's guest. So let's talk about her for a bit, shall we? Her style is very familiar. Did she make another film? Uh, She's made a few. Uh, She actually studied at Harvard uh, under Ruth Lingford, who was, I think, the second person I ever interviewed for Squiggly. um, Very impressive animator. Oh, yeah. She, and lovely. Like, just a really... She, oh, my God. My stock went up so much. <laughs> when I met her, it was at Stuttgart. The first time I went to Stuttgart. And um, she got me onto the dance floor. And she was... So, all the women who were there were so... Like, they loved her so much that by dancing with her, like, I became fucking Captain Hot Shit for the <laughs> rest of the week. So, you know, I still owe her a, a, a beer for that. Um, she, you know, I've talked to her since for my book as well. And... um fantastic work she did little deaths which i'm sure we've talked about on here which is a film mainly about like people's perspectives and on orgasm but a lot of her work has a kind of sexually charged energy to it so renee zahn studied under her in harvard and um as she will go into uh, in the interview didn't really have a ton of animation background before then and yet the animation she produced at harvard is fucking great Yes. Like, yeah. it's it's so good. It's mostly, like, 2D, um, very pigeon-oriented. <laughs> um, the first film, Pidge, is about a pigeon committing suicide and kind of, like, contemplating all manner of things on the way down. The other film was called... It's got... Hang on, it's got a weird name. Um, uh, Hold Me Kaka Kaka. Which, again, has, like, a a pigeon living with this sort of sloppy humanoid form. They're both quite, like, flaccid forms, like... Yeah, she has a really weird sense of articulation of the body. Yeah. But it works because she understands movement and she understands parallax and, like, continuous motion. It's like her characters don't have bones. Mm. Yeah, they all flap. Yeah. They're all flapping about the place. Flap and flop. But they all... But the motion makes sense. It just doesn't make sense for the thing they are. Yeah, there isn't, I think, a chapter in the animated survival kit that sort of goes into this approach. When you're making a flesh monster. (laughs) But yet, it feels very assured. Yes. And there is a real sense of, like, physicality to these characters. And, you know, it's full animation. It's enormously fluid. And her new film also brings in a lot of different mediums and ways of working. Yeah. Because there's a lot of painting and, like, scraping and, oh, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, it's a NFTS film that she started, usually, I guess, with the NFTS, like, you get these shorter films people produce over the first year or so, and then they kind of focus on getting that big grad film done. This, I think, she started... 
and then went back to after she finished the big film. Her big film and the NFCS was called Oh Black Hole. And it's like really sort of super epic musical mixed media, like, you know, 2D with stop motion, like, you know, proper like puppet animation that takes, you know, the approach that she uses with her sense of movement and physicality in the 2D animation and Which translates hard it. to do in puppets. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because her way of movement is so 2D leaning. Yeah, it's not what <laughs> I guess a lot of stop motion puppets are designed for. No. You'd really have to think through the construction of it. So that's a film that you've probably, you know, seen if you've been actively participating in festivals. I know that's done the rounds at a bunch of places. I don't know so much if this film has started doing the rounds before encounters, but yeah, it just screamed out at me again. Like I said, it's called Soft Animals. And in a way, it's sort of about the doughy softness of all of us. It's about two people who meet up having not seen each other for a while. It becomes very apparent that they used to have some kind of relationship going on, certainly something that involved, you know, going to bed with each other because they're being civil in that way that you're civil to someone that you kind of didn't particularly want to bump into necessarily. But, but you then, have seen their genitals, so you have to sort of be a bit... It, yeah, it's right kind of there. Yeah, it's the, the fighting, I suppose, between that, like, outward pleasantries and inward miasma of, like, lust and hormones and possibly a bit of, like, you know, residual resentments. And so it manifests uh, as this kind of animalistic bloodbath slash orgy as you know their kind of primal form sort of circle around each other and bark at each other and grapple at each other um it's just it's probably the most like pure undiluted sexual energy film i've seen in a long time and yeah like really interesting like combination of materials it's not quite as um you know, elaborately mixed media as O Black Hole. It doesn't have, you know, the sort of fully realized stop motion elements, but there are these big amorphous paint daubs that are kind of almost used in a stop motion-y way, I would say. It's just a really interesting watch, and it, you know, I think it's something everyone can relate to at a certain point in their life. Charts and counters and uh, the little vapor trails of memory that are associated with them. Hmm. Right, so shall we get to know Renee Zahn a bit? Yes, please. Cool, here we go. So I sort of came into animation because I grew up painting and drawing and also watching movies. And I think I always wanted to make movies, but I was really, I really didn't want to talk to anybody. So that would make it difficult. And so somehow I realized that animation was the way to make movies alone in my bedroom. So yeah, that's kind of how it started. And I went to undergrad at Harvard in the States, which isn't really an art school, but they had an animation program there. And the professor, Ruth Lingford, who's a British animator, was my sort of guru and mentor and good friend. So she kind of taught me everything that I know. And yeah, there I made my first film, which is called Pidge. It's about a suicidal pigeon who jumps off a building and then realizes halfway down that he can he can still change his mind at any point. Um, so he's sort of contemplating his life as he's falling and deciding. And he decides that he, well, ultimately he decides he does want to live, but then sort of outside circumstances 
prevent that. Um, so it's, yeah, it was sort of this dark comedy and I was really involved with the Harvard Lampoon. So I was really uh, interested in comedy, but then I think starting to think about other uses for animation or other um, things that could be expressed through animation. But yeah, that's kind of where it started. And then led me eventually to the UK and to the National Film and Television School and to sort of these other projects and films that I've been working on since. Yeah. So going back to Harvard, and that's really nice to hear that you had a thing going with Ruth because I sort of associate Ruth with like starting at Squiggly. She was, I think, the second person I ever interviewed. Had you been familiar with her films when you went initially or... Did you kind of? No, come, not yeah. at all. The only the only animation I was familiar with was sort of Pixar, and oh. so it's quite a shock <laughs> to <laughs> um, go to her first screening and expect. And I expected, I really expected to be watching Finding Nemo, and then she showed Asparagus and Michelle Corn. I don't know how to say her last name. The Hat, and yeah. and yeah, and she really kind of. It was really eye opening, kind of realizing what animation could be, what it could be saying and, and showing and um, how sort of powerful and effective it could be. So was it like geography, I guess, that determined that you kind of looked there or did you look at a bunch of different schools or? It was my parents <laughs> who uh -huh. told me I had to go once I got in. I, yeah, I sort of, I, I mean, I was very scholarly um, in, high, in high school and everything and kind of sort of secretly wanted to be an artist but you know there were expectations to be something else like a doctor a lawyer or something so yeah I applied to a bunch of different colleges some art schools like Rhode Island School of Design and then the Ivy Leagues like Harvard Yale but yeah once I, I was kind of it was a huge another huge shock to get that acceptance but then once I got in I was I was going and I didn't have a choice about it but um, it actually turned out to be really great. I'm really happy that I was there because, yeah, it's not really an art school. You know, we have, it's a liberal arts college. So you have to take all these different classes, learn about history, art history, psychology. And I think all those things really sort of were good for me and really feed into my films and the way I think about my films as well. And it's not, I mean, there is also a really great art department and a really great film department there visual and environmental studies is what it was called. And there were great artists working there, like Rob Moss, Chris Killip, Ruth, and yeah, and great visiting lectures as well, like Paul Bush from the UK as well came and there for a semester. So it was a really good, really good education. I'm really happy that I went. And I think my parents were right just that, just that one time. <laughs> Well, I have to say, I mean, I see a lot of student films between magazine and uh, festival programming and occasionally teaching, and it's rare that, you know, sort of out of the gate, they demonstrate such an assured grasp of a lot of the tenets of animation, and I see a lot of that in the films that you produce there. I mean, did you come into that environment with, like, a knowledge base already established, or was that really like the beginning of you learning animation? Yeah, I think Harvard, my undergrad was the first time I, um, yeah, made, made animation. And I think I, I just really delved really deep into it. I kind of didn't do mm. my other classes. I just, it was so amazing the first time that my drawings moved. And, and yeah, like I said, I just, 
got really obsessed with it and started watching a lot. And then kind of, I think I, I, I guess I have this kind of desire to be, and I think it's really ingrained my culture and everything to like, to be the best to succeed. And I felt really, I felt really, you know, guilty about being an artist and, and unsure and, and felt the need to prove that that was something worth doing to myself and to people that I cared about as well. So yeah, that's why it kind of really went all in. Well, I mean, it definitely, like I say, it really sort of shines through. And um, you mentioned about being sort of into comedy and stuff. Did you write the script as well for Pidge? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. I thought that was really wonderful. I love the, the beats of that. The other thing was that, and I noticed this more with um, Hold Me, but there's already this real strength to the editing and the production design and the layout. Like, these feel like films. These don't feel like someone who's kind of finding their way, which is sort of often, like, there are lots of, like, hallmarks of that with um, with student films. So it's great to see something that kind of, you know, it's interesting to watch as a film. They're quite lofty themes, uh, especially with Hold Me. I just, I want to kind of give it a bit of like an airing because I don't think people talk about Harvard as an animation school so much, uh, certainly in the UK. So, yeah. It's actually some really um, kind of exciting animators have gone through there, like Caroline Leaf and like, I'm completely blanking on everyone else, but there have been, <laughs> <laughs> there have been others. Oh, um, Tim Breckhart, who directed head over heels later and then that sony film which do you like making your own films then were there particular sort of filmic influences or directors or artists in your mind when you started out that you kind of wanted to follow in the footsteps of i looked a lot at live action films i really love lars von trier which i think is a controversial opinion you know people say that he's sexist because he creates these weak female characters, but I don't really think they are weak. I think, I don't think a female character needs to be strong in order to be, I don't know, in order to be. I think that seeing weak characters being really brave or perseverant, sort of existing despite that and still kind of doing their best and making their decisions, whether those decisions, I don't know. I, I really liked his female characters. Mm. I sort of identified with him and the, the bird in, in Hold Me was kind of, I thought of her as like someone in that group. I really love Bjork. Um, I think the, her kind of vision and her commitment to being herself and, and she's really weird, but people yeah. somehow, people really like that. They really like identify that with that. And I think I've heard a lot recently that my work is very weird and <laughs> often that's um, said in a negative way. And I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of, sometimes it's hard to take that as a compliment, but I think I probably should try to. I think so. I think as it's usually kind of a defense mechanism. If someone doesn't understand something, then it either has to be, it can't have gone over their head. So they have to rationalize it. It's, you know, it's odd. Or it's just too, yeah, too weird for its own good, rather than actually kind of invest in deciphering it. So I, I think it's much better to make divisive films than films that people are just like, oh, that's right. Because then the, that's where the conversation sort of ends. So if people are a bit combative about it and their feathers are a bit ruffled, I think that's kind of a nice thing as a filmmaker. 
as long as they're not like cruel about it, you know. Yeah, I agree. Definitely, hate hating my film is more. It's more interesting. It's more than just kind of forgetting about it. It's definitely better. I think I also noticed, you know, the thing that kind of stands out about the first couple of films, very pigeon oriented. As a sort of study, I guess, was there a particular reason why pigeons had appeal? I really love birds. I my dad kept like ten cockatiels in in our house when um, I was growing up, and I think I really I inherited that love of birds. There's something really weird and and scary and also beautiful about them. I'm planning to go back to the pigeons. Actually, I have a few <laughs> few ideas in mind, so I'm not I'm not done with the pigeons or the birds yet. Mm. So again, going back to like hold me and uh, why to me it kind of stood out because we talk about you know relationship oriented animation on this podcast quite a lot, but we don't talk as much about like codependence or people who are kind of, I guess, forced together, especially like now, the last sort of year or so, you hear a lot of stories about people who are kind of unable to, you know, leave a situation. So it struck me as pretty resonant. Did that, the time, because it would have been a few years ago now, did that come from anywhere in particular, that theme? Yeah, it was kind of, I think at the beginning, very much so all of my films kind of came from personal experience or feeling I had at least they started from there and then sort of grew into characters. Now I'm, I think I'm looking more at, I'm trying to look more at the world and, and other sources as well. Cause I'm running out of things about myself to, <laughs> to say, I think. I think partly because the last, yeah, the last year I've just been sitting inside and yeah, not doing very much living. I guess we all have. But yeah, that film uh, in particular, it was sort of based on a relationship I was in at the time and then exited, but still very much was thinking about and still kind of in. I think I made three films about uh, this boy and I um, hope he doesn't see this. But yeah, it's it's great that I was able to milk so much material out of it looking mm. back. So, so yeah, it was, it was kind of, it started there and then, but then also grew into this. Once I was writing the film, the, the characters took on their own story. I've never laid an egg, um, but the bird has. <laughs> Rene Poptosis, was it also Harvard? It was made, sort of. It, um, after I graduated Harvard, I got a traveling fellowship. So they funded me to go to Japan for a year and live there and make and make a film. So that's where I made Renee Poptosis. It's an odd question, I suppose, but did that have sort of autobiographical elements to it? <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> yes. And that was probably because so I'm the idea came because withhold me and with all my films, everyone was asking me, is this character based on you? And so for this film I decided I'm just gonna make it explicit. It is based on me. They're all based on me. And I went to Japan and I just graduated and I wanted to do something that I had never done before. So I went on a two month hike from Tokyo to Kyoto on my own and camping and stuff. And partly this is embarrassing as well, but I'd seen this film wild about this girl who I think her mom dies and, and she goes through a divorce or something. So she goes on this long hike and it kind of fixes everything in her life. And I just thought, Oh, I'm going to, this will be great. I'm going to go on this hike. And so I did it. And it was, it was amazing. It was kind of the best and hardest thing I've done. It was raining all the time. There are leeches. 
up my legs and things like that. So yeah, that's where that film started was these characters going on a journey to find themselves. And and yeah, and I kind of made it completely alone. I just didn't I didn't really talk to anyone in Japan because I don't speak Japanese and I didn't really know anyone. So mostly I was just very lonely. And it I think the film was this idea that when you are very lonely, you can start you start to consume yourself um, inside your head. But in the film, they do so literally. They start to consume um, the giant Renee body that they're walking on. So how long would that have been, like, sort of turnaround time? It was maybe a, a year and a half, oh, but yeah. I wasn't I wasn't working all the time. It was kind of doing some hiking. Oh. Then I would um, get an Airbnb for a couple of weeks and work there and then carry the film to the next place. It was a very nomadic mm. experience. Yeah, it was a great it was a great way to make I'd really like to do it again. So, yeah, and this then played at Sundance and it won? Yeah, that was a shock. <laughs> but nice. Were you able to go? Like, would this have been before things shut down? Yeah, it was really nice. It was an amazing, amazing kind of surreal time. And I gave a very embarrassing long speech, I think. I haven't, I'm not really sure. <laughs> it's all a blur. <laughs> cool, so then um, I guess you move on to the NFTS. And so how did they get on your radar? Was it just through like reputation? Yeah, and it was probably through Ruth and because she'd taught there as well. And people like Tim Merkart and then Christina Yi before him, they'd kind of gone from Harvard to NFTS and both done like really well. So I thought, yeah, I should try it. But I mostly, I was kind of thinking grad schools, but I chose NFTS over RCA or, or more art school format because they force you to work in, in teams and collaborate. And I wanted to be pushed to do that because I was used to making films on my own and I felt like pretty comfortable making films on my own. Um, but I thought I really, I, I like to make myself uncomfortable, I think, and challenge myself, I guess, is a nicer way to put it. So I thought, okay, the next hurdle is actually directing a team. So that's how I ended up at the NFTS. So yeah, and uh, so Oh Black Hole, which I think came out last year, yeah, that does such a great job of translating what I guess at that point was a sort of established style, especially in terms of like characters and stuff and, and taking that into stop motion. Could you talk a bit about how that was developed? Yeah, so the idea for the film came because I started making these drawings. Um, I think a lot of the first part of the process for me is making drawings and images. Usually films kind of start from from an image or an idea. And I, I was making these drawings of a woman with sort of this dark smear across her face and where her face and head should have been. And yeah, I was making this drawing kind of thinking about why was I doing that? What does it mean? And I was sort of doing it a lot and my tutors were like, oh, is it depression? Is it, you know, does it mean, what does it mean? Does it mean grief? I was like, no, I don't think so. I think, no, I think she has a black hole for her head. So that's where that came from. And then I started reading about black holes because I don't actually know anything about them. And at the center, time stops in a black hole, I think. I still am not totally sure. And so I tend to make films about things that I'm scared of. And I think a kind of universal fear is, you know, fear of change, fear of people leaving, dying, 
getting old, like the passing of time, basically. So I thought, that, okay, this woman has turned herself into a black hole because she's so afraid of the passing of time that she wants to keep everyone and everything safe in, in forever inside of her. So that's where the idea for the film came from. And yeah, I thought stop motion because partly because the NFTS is kind of known for it and has the resources for it. And it was another challenge for me to do this new thing and would sort of force me to work with a bigger team of production designers, cinematographer, model makers to kind of make this this thing happen. And I and it's a film that I definitely couldn't have made on my own. So that's why I went down that route. And in terms of developing the story then, was that also with like a team? Well, we get a lot of feedback, maybe too much feedback from tutors from all departments about story. That's, I think NFTS is really very focused on story and, and characters, which is great. It was really, really good for me to experience and to take in and also sometimes to push back on. Um, and yeah, I worked with the writer, Vanessa Rose, and producer, um, Jesse Romain, and we sort of developed the the story together. And then they kept, everyone kept asking me for a, a script and a animatic and storyboard, and I just was very incapable of producing those at the right time. So the story really kept evolving, even as we were shooting and building and stuff. So it kind of was a liquid process, which resulted in a... Uh, I don't know, meandering, <laughs> a bit meandering mm. musical journey. Mm. I guess sort of distinct from your other films at that point, in that it does have that sort of extra musical element, and I guess sort of more of a kind of fantasy core, although you know, none of them are, are you know completely literal, but it, it felt like there was a bit more, it was a bit more rooted perhaps in sort of maybe literature or art or other films. Was there anything like that? at play yeah i think i so the musical came because renee poptosis was um a series of it was kind of poems like these couplets these rhyming couplets and i did that because i was when i was making that film i was so overwhelmed by the kind of nobody was telling me i didn't have a deadline i did i wasn't getting any feedback at all so i just needed something to kind of limit myself or a structure for myself so that's how that happened. And then it made sense. The next thing would be a musical. And like I said earlier, I really love Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark with Bjork. I really like musicals that kind of shouldn't be musicals that are dark and, and strange, but kind of, I like the, I don't know, the, the, the tone, I guess, that suddenly everyone starts singing. And it was, yeah, it was really influenced by, it, it was kind of meant to be a really classical quest narrative, like this, Heroine wakes up, she's like sent on a quest and then she meets these three, you know, hurdles and then she confronts the big boss and then everything is kind of fixed. And it, it does, it is that, but it also, I don't think it really comes across as quite that straightforward, which I really meant for it to. So I really <laughs> went wrong somewhere there, but that's okay. Oh, we were talking about birds earlier and there was meant to be, so there's these three levels in the black hole that she meet the planets and then the seasons and then the humans. And there was originally meant to be a fourth level, the birds level, but that got cut because of the deadline. Mm. Um, so I really, I do miss that a bit, but yeah. Oh, and it was kind of inspired by like Dante's Inferno, the layers of hell, earth, heaven. So mm. she's starting in the dark and then kind of, you know, traveling upwards towards the light. 
and Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights, these kind of levels of heaven, earth, and hell was kind of another inspiration. So, yeah, it encounters soft animals as playing, and um, this really leapt out at me. I think probably on a personal level, looking through your films, this one's probably the most, like, directly relatable as far as that theme of ships passing in the night, I suppose. Was this also NFTS? Yeah, it started out as an NFTS project, and then where I completely sort of ignored the project and did just made, made the film. And then I finished it this January because I had a lot of free time. Mm. So it is, yeah, it is. So was O Black Hole then your sort of primary, like, film? You didn't, like, have earlier shorter films other than Soft Animals? Yeah, we just do one sort of big grad film in the second year. And in the first year, we do three shorter projects, so really oh. small projects. And then I... Yeah, Soft Animals turned into a small film. Cool. Similarly, be sort of curious to know where the idea came from or why this particular subject hit you as a theme for a film. Yeah, so I um, I said that I, I made three films about one boy and this is one of, this sort of started out as one of those about the, the, the after the breakup when mm. you see and yeah i think it's and it's it's i think it's something that happens you know you somebody that you're really close with and then you leave each other but then if you run into him again it's very awkward it's very just this oh like kind of surface level encounter is what the audio of the film is you know where they're just saying hi oh you look great but then i think the second level of that is the way that the body feels and responds and remembers mm. um, kind of separately from the mind. So the visuals of the film are what they're imagining, what their sort of more animal instincts are expressing, which is lust and missing each other in some mm. way. And yeah, that's kind of where the film came from. Yeah. So sort of, um, it just sort of brought back like just memories of like your, your, an exchange with someone and every moment of the exchange is like fighting the urge or just sort of, I guess, fighting to be civil, fighting to be socially, you know, appropriate. And yeah, just sort of keeping all of that, you know, that, that stew of memories and, you know, everything you know about each other. And, you know, some of them are good. A lot of them maybe not necessarily so good. And then also the, yeah, there's a kind of odd comfort, I suppose, of like, someone that you've known in a certain way. I know it's, it's a little affirming. What I also really loved is the sort of painterly elements. Uh, I thought they worked really well with that distinct sort of character motion, and especially in terms of like highlighting the appealing grotesquery, I guess, of flesh. And uh, that kind of put me in mind a bit of like Lucian Freud and a bit of like Francis Bacon, and we were talking about, like, you know, art that sort of went into your other film. Were there sort of specific art influences on that side of things? Yeah, it was it was Bacon and, and Ford's oh. paintings. <laughs> so you got it. Yeah, yeah I, I think um, for me, paint and, and the kind of texture and, and dampness and, you know, squishiness of that is really tied in heavily to, like, bodies touching each other and sweat and, like, 
kind of visceral grossness of it all. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm really happy to hear that it kind of it comes across, and then and also that these emotions that I was trying to that I put in are yeah come out for the audience. Mm. Yeah. Oh, and the other I guess the other thing about the technique of it was um, this kind of draw erase technique with the charcoal and then erase and then draw it again. I like the traces that it leaves behind and I thought mm. that tied in as well with the memories and the, and the traces and the imprints that people sort of leave on each other yeah it kind of stays with you uh, I just got an email 10 minutes before we got on the call from Blinkink announcing your uh, signing so congratulations had you worked with them before I had done a adult swim they do these episodes called off the air where it's kind of these dreamscapes where they have different artists each doing a one minute section of a 10 minute thing loosely based around themes like love or the one I did was called progress. Yeah, it was a great, that was a great job. I'd love to work with adult swim again because they really mm. give you free reign and just, and the resulting 10 minutes are so wildly different and, and weird. And yeah, and I just uh, signed with link. So I'm very, very excited about that. So is there anything coming up that you're able to talk about at the moment or? Um... Um, yeah, I'm doing one thing that's solid. The only thing is um, I'm doing a live action animation hybrid short film with BBC Films and NFTS. And yeah, it's a horror film about a British Chinese girl in a sort of high pressure youth orchestra. And mm -hmm everything sort of spirals when an identical Chinese girl shows up in the orchestra and they they're in competition. It's kind of, in, it's like based on my life growing up. Um, I was a violinist and kind of the pressure of that from the family, from sort of being an other, because I grew up in Texas. So always feeling kind of other and yeah, that's, that's the film. And that was Renee Zahn director of Soft Animals, playing as part of The Encounters' official selection. And you can catch that before Encounters wraps up at the end of the month. I quite like the sound of that horror film coming up. Yeah, that's going to be good. From, you know, a description just then, this sounds like a great concept. I like the sort of Lynchian doppelganger element to it. Yeah, know. yeah, definitely. Fantastic. Well, um, Renee Zahn, one to check out if you haven't yet. You can see her work at reneezahn.com. And as I mentioned, she's now on the Blink Inc. roster, so you can check out her work there as well at blinkink.co.uk slash directors slash Renee dash Zahn. Also, the film Renee Poptosis, which we talked about in that interview, is now online in full. Uh, definitely check it out because it's batshit and great fun. Yeah, I mean, it has a lot of her kind of, I guess, now what's becoming kind of her own tropes of these kind of weird homunculi-like characters <laughs> that kind of look like sad penises at all times. Yeah, everything definitely has that sort of... I mean, the bodily processes and bodily functions and organic processes, nature, decay, and life, and, yeah, rot, and <laughs> secretions. And it's everything that's sort of um, gooey. Mm -hmm. I think on her, her website, she says something like, you know, celebrates everything squishy. Yeah, yeah, and um, that definitely comes across. She had a good quote about the premise of Renee Poptosis. She describes it as a bunch of Renees who go on a quest to find God, who's also me. 
<laughs> so yeah, that's online now. And uh, as you mentioned, Soft Animals, you can check out as part of Encounters. And uh, yeah, thank you for joining us, Renee. A couple of things that have come up on the site recently, perhaps worth mentioning. This came through uh, the other day. It was a London studio called Future Power Station, and they worked on a sequence for Sex Education, which is a show that's on Netflix, and it just dropped its third season, which I've not seen all of. I quite like the show. I've only just sort of started the third season, but I've seen this clip, which uh, was sent across, and it's a animation of, I guess, an erotic original piece of fiction by one of the characters who fancies herself as a sci-fi novelist or sci-fi very much uh, infused with a lot of erotica and sexuality and from what i remember about the character that very much is kind of how her sexuality presents itself it's through writing it's through fantasy but in a very like specific way i guess one that draws upon certain types of cinema and um TV shows and whatnot. Yeah, I haven't really watched the show that uh, fully, so I, whenever you have it on, I'm trying to. So I'm that annoying person that's like, "Who's that? What's that person? Why are they annoyed at that other person?" But this character, I I know of because she really stands out, um, and her and her girlfriend have very like punchy looks, I guess. And so I can tell from this animation who they are and who they are in the show. The animation is really well done i think and it really captures that i can completely see that this is the avatar she has in her head mm, yeah. um because she sort of dresses constantly a little bit like she's going to comic-con yeah it's sort of it's it's like how we as we're growing up and we have like creative outlets and stuff and we have our own production values in our head mm. and you know especially if we're animators or you know what this looks like to me it, it looks like what would happen if they remade full metal now heavy metal heavy metal sorry yeah yeah no it's that that vibe as well yeah it's all that um, kind of like late 80s sci-fi airbrush fantasy art it's, it's really nicely done i like it a lot yeah, and the um, the two performers in the show who these cartoon versions are, are based on, like you say, they have, they're both very striking, I guess, and it translates really well to animation mm. design. They'd be really fun to draw as characters because they, yeah. they have, they both have very extreme physical and facial structures, so they're very interesting to look at. So yeah, you can check out if... Um, you haven't actually watched the show, but you're just sort of interested in the animation thing that we're describing. You can check that out on Squiggly. It's fairly recent news. Or you can check out uh, Future Power Station. They'll have it up, I'm sure. A couple of things on the Squiggly showcase that caught my eye. One's a film I'm pretty sure we would have talked about probably around this time last year, because it was part of Encounters 2020. And I did speak with the director, Henrietta Ritz, as part of the filmmaker Q&As, but those aren't available anymore. Um, it's a film called Postpartum. Essentially, this is a film about motherhood and, um, I suppose lingering misconceptions people might have going into it about what this phase of life is like, uh, versus the reality of it. Yeah. It's about the postpartum bubble of you and your partner and your baby and how all encompassing it is and how actually, I mean, most people I've heard from who have recently had babies 
a i don't hear from them for like the first three months at least and then like they come out of it like they emerge out of it like a chrysalis except for where the chrysalis was dry and they're very tired (laughs) and like there's just this perfectly bouncy baby that seems lovely and they're like take it (laughs) this is a really nice design feel it's it feels a bit like modern greeting cards you get in like places like Scribbler or something. It's that, that sort of design style. Yeah, it's very graphic and very simple. It kind of feels like the whole thing could have been animated on Procreate. Uh, it says here, uh, I drew everything frame by frame in Photoshop, and it was edited in Premiere. So yeah, that that has a similar, I think, sort of yeah. like immediacy that to Procreate, doesn't it? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, I would say that it's probably easier to animate on Procreate, but um, in some ways, I don't know. It you go with what feels comfortable, I guess. The other thing I remember about this film is the narrator, I think, is Charlotte Roche, who was that uh, author I was reading a while back. Who uh, She's written a couple of books that have been sort of kind of critically maligned by, you know, mediocre male critics, and that kind of piqued my interest, because usually when that happens, it's usually a pretty good book. She writes a lot about body stuff, and I think there's still this kind of lingering fig of like, but you're a lady! You shouldn't be shouldn't be acknowledging that you have a butthole, and um, yeah, Charlotte Roche is very butthole centric in her writing, and I think that it's sort of a good pairing in that sense that this is a film that really lays out how our bodies just kind of like. Well, I mean, there's a whole sequence in the film about just like everything leaks at um, a certain point. So, yeah. Any closing thoughts on this one? No, I just really like it. I've seen it a few times. It's been at quite a lot of festivals at this point and i think it's a it's a nice one that i think it came at a time that where there was quite a lot of films about i I don't know i think maybe just mums are making more films but i just feel like i've seen a lot of films about postpartum and pregnancy and having a baby and stuff that are quite short and manageable and have that kind of immediate hand-drawn style but this is a particularly strong one in that genre (laughs) yeah genre is probably a bit much <laughs> so another one on the squiggly showcase that went up the other day uh, is by krista gerald and did you say you knew her yeah i think we studied very briefly together in cambridge oh. um and then she went on to the nfts to do the animation course there uh this is a really sort of short and sweet uh one minute film that's, I guess, mainly about unwanted sexual advances or uh, how to deal with lasciviousness. Is it true? It perhaps has a bit of a legendary status syndrome, um, maybe elements of her embellishment. It does seem that, you know, certainly her response, I guess, to the advance is based on something factual. I won't say what it is because that would spoil the film, but you can check it out on the Squiggly Showcase. And that is A Dearly Bought Kiss by Krista Gerald. Yeah, so that's all at squiggly.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at squiggly. We're on Instagram at squigglyanimation, facebook.com slash squigglymagazine. Check us out on all of them. So that's all from us. I'm not sure when we'll be back with this, but hopefully before too long. Thanks again to Renee Zahn for joining us. I've been Ben Mitchell. I'm at Ben L. Mitchell on Instagram. And I've been Laura Beth Cowley. You can find me at LB Cowley on Twitter and LB Yellow at Instagram. Superb. Well, until next time, goodbye. Bye. Bye.